thanks Paul. I'm not certain the DVD will work. We're we're it. Well, good morning. Just while I get myself sorted out, why don't you just turn to the person next to you to see if you can clarify whether you are a man or a woman and whether you are prayer shy at all. So just turn to the person next to you and I just get myself sorted here. Okay, is anyone still in any doubt? It's all been sorted. It's great to be with you. Uh, the last time I was in King's Church, Hastings was in 2004, because uh, I looked it up on my computer, and uh, I even know what I spoke about on that day, and I'm possibly the only one in the room who can remember that. <laughs> but uh, 2004, I am uh, really excited to be here. I'm over with my son Jake, and uh, he's making sure that I speak correctly and biblically. And uh, my wife and my daughter are back in Eastbourne today, uh, but we send, uh, they send, and our church in Eastbourne send their regards. It is exciting to be here. I love being into this uh, new auditorium that you've got. I hope you like it. Uh, I know that uh, Paul shared with me that the plans way before you were doing it and so getting very animated and excited about it. Uh, I was also uh, thrilled. I think I heard within about an hour of the gift day that paid for this. Uh, I think I got a text message through from Paul saying, whoa, it's amazing. And uh, it, it is amazing and it's fantastic. And it's not just about the building. Uh, there's so much more, okay? It's not just about doing the building. There's so much thinking and prayer behind this and philosophy. Someone came to me one day a little while back and said, Graham, can I spend some time with you because I need to understand your philosophy of ministry? At that point, I didn't have a philosophy of ministry. And, uh, and so it was at that moment I started to think through what was my understanding and philosophy. So I understand very much about what is going on here in terms of uh, it's not just about the cosmetics. And I just want to encourage you that actually um, we come from the same parentage. Do you understand that? I know that the old man was in last week. Okay? <laughs> I met up with him in the week. He positioned himself in King Centre in Eastbourne and uh, just at the point when all the old guard were coming in and were like long-lost relatives. Now, I know that you know uh, Don loves a cuddle and a hug and, uh, and he was in his element last uh, week, but I heard that he was here last Sunday morning. But we share the same parentage in terms of the founding father uh, and so the DNA is running between the two. But I also understand one of his phrases is that the, the number on the bus hasn't changed. And the number on the bus hasn't changed. The driver has. You've had one or two more drivers. But also, uh, even the vehicle needs to change. The destination remains exactly the same. How we get there might vary. And, how, and, and some of the, uh, the vehicle in which we, we're now running needs to obviously be placed into the context of where we are now. A church 30 years ago is actually vastly different. The culture 30 years ago is hugely different. And so actually there needs to be a vehicle for the 2011 and 12 and 13 that is actually going to be effective at reaching in and, and uh, touching in and affecting the community in which we're a part of. So I just want to encourage you that actually this, is, you know, this auditorium, fantastic, but I know that there's so much more. Now I know some of you might go, well, it's not my preference to have done this. Uh, we just had something called the Battle of the Milk. The Battle of the Milk for about six months in Eastbourne. 
Uh, and, and it was this ongoing saga because our welcome team were insistent that the, um, the little plastic milk cartons were the way forward. And I was kind of edging towards the fact that people prefer fresh milk rather than plastic milk. And so I thought, like, what's well, my preference, my preference? And eventually, fresh milk won out and uh, we actually went to the extent of fresh milk in the coffee in the visitor's area. Now, it's not everyone's preference, Okay? But sometimes I, I really understand and appreciate that you've let go of your preferences in order because you've seen the bigger picture. You know what this is about. And so even, you know, what about putting a what about doing this? What about, you know, as you go into the future and things like that? That I am so thrilled, I'm sure, that you'll be laying down preferences for the overall sense of what God is calling you and, and, and we're in on the same thing, what God is calling us to. So I, you know, investing in on this building it does matter, it will make a difference, it is incredibly worth it, but the building itself isn't going to be growing the church, you know that, it's the heart behind it and the mission behind it and the passion that you share, Uh, God is catching you up into his missional purposes. But doing things well does matter. It it does matter. And it really matters for a particular part of the community, the most unreached people group in this country. The most unreached people group in this country are men. And actually, I just add that the fact that to men get here tonight to be praying, you know, along with the women, it is so important. But to have a church that is starting to look and to reach out and to access and to influence and affect men, and actually some of the things, it, it does matter. I once was challenged that actually someone said to me, uh, which is the right list? Which describes church? And so on one side they gave me this list that said love and fellowship and belonging and security and identity. On the other side they gave me another list that said uh, commitment and goals and targets and achievements. Actually both lists are true in terms of the purposes of what God has called us to. One appeals to one set of people, another list probably appeals to more set of people and those people actually appreciate things being done well. So actually having an excellent God, he deserves us doing things excellently, but also in a missional sense, even just some of our involvement in some of the decisions that are being made of what we do and how we do it, guess what? It actually really does make a difference and it does matter. And so I just want to encourage you as as I spent time with Paul over recent months and hearing his heart and, and his sense of where God is calling you as a community to. I love his heart and I love his vision and it's something that really resonates with me because he's catching hold of something, uh, his philosophy of ministry, or he's grabbing hold of what he believes this church is calling you to. As you know, we've been given a great commandment, okay, to love one another, to love God, to love one another, and to be a community which is so overwhelming, to have such an expression of grace and love, that unfortunately the wider church has gained a reputation that actually it's the last place people will go to in order to get them to feel better. Why? Because they already feel so judged, already feel so condemned. Why on earth would I go to church in order to feel even worse than that? But actually, I reckon church and the gospel and the good news that we have, we should have the most embracing, overwhelming community, the most accepting, uh, I'm not saying approving, but the most welcoming, the most accommodating in the sense that, hey, come on, all sorts, all are welcome. And actually, for us to be ditching to one side some of the prejudices that we personally hold, some of the issues that we have, even some of our background and some of our uh, upbringing, we've kind of got to be willing to let some of those go. Why? Because church should be and ought to be the most welcoming, overwhelming sense of a loving community here on the face of the earth. 
and to gain a reputation of being a friend of sinners just like someone else we dearly love. Church ought to be very messy. It really should be. Church should be messy all over the place, not physically with things, but messy lives. And I love to be in a church in Eastbourne that is just filled with mess because it's part of the gospel of God to redeem what has been broken and restore it. So there is this sense of actually this calling upon us to be in an environment where we are incredibly, overwhelmingly loving and grace-filled, gracious towards other people. So there's the great commandment. There is also, you know, the great commission. We're on co-mission with Jesus in order to reach into the world in which we're part of, making disciples, image bearers of Christ. And so it's into that that actually I know the philosophy of ministry, the heart, the passion, everything that you are as a community that has been in excess of 30 years has actually wanted to make a difference within this community that you're a part of. Every day for about four years I travelled over to Hastings. I know the journey well. I travelled over, I spent time on the ridge in car park traffic and uh, you know, I spent time into Ashdown House working as part of child support. So I understand uh, you know, the, the area in which we live because I worked with many people who live within this area. But I also understand your heart and your commitment and your passion to be a part of influencing and affecting this town that, that we're in. Five years ago, I really felt as if God was saying to, to me and to us over in Eastbourne, it was time for us to start to wear different clothes. You know, start living in such a way that reflects the sort of church that you're going to be moving into. And I, honestly, I believe that, that that feels as if that is where you are now, is that God is calling you. It feels like a, there's, there's a fresh purpose and a fresh direction. There's a fresh clarity of, of a calling upon your life as a church. And I know that for uh, 22 years in the case of Donna, 30 years here, is that he spent so many years in terms of building a good, solid, biblically relevant church community. But a few weeks ago, I really felt as if God was saying, it's not just time to start wearing uh, bigger clothes, but actually it's time to start wearing different clothes. To actually start to be something that is not familiar to you. Start to wear a different wardrobe altogether. And there's actually, there's almost this sense, actually, what does that mean? Because we've spent 22 and a half years looking at really building a, a, a biblically New Testament church within the community of Eastport. And, and, and that is something that we're truly and, and really aiming for us to be. But actually, what does it mean to be building into a different, build differently? And actually, one of the areas which I really believe God is calling us to, and I believe there's some sense of calling even into this setting here today, is actually not just be a church that builds a good church, but be a church that also builds a good town and a good community that you're a part of. So it's much wider. It's much broader. I've got to spend all my life being satisfied in the sense of, hey, we've got a good church, but actually I believe God is saying, don't just build a good church, but build a great town as well. And actually this church here, uh, it's a far bigger vision that I believe God is wanting to give. And even in this context of praying together and being together and hearing from God in the prayer meetings, is actually to broaden out this understanding that actually the gospel is so much more than actually just building a great community within these buildings, but actually being a part of seeing a community affected by the gospel of Jesus. And it's into that, really, that I wanted to be talking about. I do believe that God is saying, talking about transforming community and being in for the long haul. But before we get into that, I just want to throw out some questions. Marmite. Love it? Hate it? Split decision. 
Okay. <laughs> Princess Beatrice's hat at the wedding. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Hate it. <laughs> That's not quite so split. <laughs> King's Church Hastings. Love it? Hate it? (laughs) I don't know what it's like here, but some people do hate King's Church Eastbourne. Hopefully not inside King's Church Eastbourne. (laughs) But some people do. And we get it. We get the flat, we get the hassle, we get the cynicism, we get the what's their agenda... But actually, in some ways, I'd rather have an opinion. I'd rather have a view rather than being kind of transparent. I'd rather people were called to make judgment upon us in one way. We recently thought about running a whole campaign in line with this, trying to break the ten myths of King's Church Eastbourne. You know, yes, we really do want to brainwash you. And yes, we do want to steal your children. And yes, we really do want all your money, but we realise that one's actually... True. <laughs> Did Don ever have a reputation of wanting all your money? You know, people are like convinced this was a myth that was going around. Go to King's Church, he'll pick you up by your trousers and he'll shake you till all your money falls out. Sadly, that is partly true as well. <laughs> Don't know about here, but Don has a thing for trousers. And, uh, yeah, some of you know that. But. But actually we decided it would probably be counterproductive to be running a campaign like that. Because in the short term, what is going to change people? It's going to be people who are living authentic, genuine, biblical, godly lives. That is actually what's going to challenge people one-on-one. But how do we look wider? How do we change, people, uh, change people's views on a much wider scale? You know, it, people might want to say, and I want them to be saying in 5, 10, 20 years' time, I don't like what they do, but there is no denying that we would miss them if they were not here. Yes. I would love to have that kind of reputation. To do something and live in such a way that if we were no longer present, they would quickly notice our disappearance to become so intrinsically linked with this community that everyone would be noticing immediately. And if you are no longer part of their lives, they would see it instantly. So how do we go about doing it? How do we go about building towards that sort of church that's going to affect this community of Hastings? A passage that may well have been preached on and spoken on, but I want to refer to it again in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, if you're unfamiliar with where that is, it's just after halfway through in your Bible. Let me place this into context while you're finding it. The people of God have been taken from their land into Babylon as exiles. They've been ripped out of their family homes, probably seen many of their family members killed. They were the cream of the cream. They were the ones that were worth saving. And they've been dragged out from their homes, from their communities, from their families, dragged hundreds of miles into a foreign, alien environment. And now God speaks to them. So that is important to put into context because if we were asked that, if we'd experienced that, just what would we be expecting God to be saying to us? Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what God says. 
Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply them. Don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I just think it is quite staggering that in the context of people being dragged out with such bad history and bad blood, that now they were being expected to live within a foreign land and to do two things. Primarily to do two things. One was to settle down, build your homes, plant your gardens, find a spouse, have babies and prepare for grandchildren. That was kind of one major thrust of that. Prepare for grandchildren. I'm a little bit worried. My son's 15, my daughter's just gone 14, my wife is already looking forward to grandchildren. We drove past Drusilla's Zoo the other week and she just longed for the day she can go on Thomas the Tank Engine once again. <laughs> but I think there's a little bit more in terms of the preparing and, 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 and settling down. The importance of settling down, making a long-term decision. It's kind of, it's time to unpack your bags. It, it, it's not to be living in, a, in rented. It's not waiting for the day for for the whole housing market to change and maybe I will then start to invest. It's this long-term commitment to an area that God is calling his people to. There's this sense that I believe God is also saying that to to us as well. Build your homes, plant your gardens, find a spouse, have babies, prepare for grandchildren. There's this sense that actually I don't just feel cold anymore. A little while ago I really felt as if it's my responsibility to do what I could do in my day. God has called me to something, I will do that all God wants me to do for this time, for this, for this generation. But actually I read passages like that and it says look at your children. Not just look at your children, but look at your grandchildren as well. There's actually a long-term purpose of getting your families and your future families getting caught up in the same purposes of God. So actually some people have been here for 30 years, some people have been here for 30 months but it's still this sense of still getting caught up in the purposes of God, that we're not just living for ourselves, but we're also living for future generations as well. So there's that calling upon us, and if that is what God is calling us to, to transform, to develop, to flourish the community, when we talk about seeking the welfare, your translation might actually say something like seek the peace, or seek the reconciliation. Actually, it's a good understanding that to, to, to seek the welfare is about bringing peace, bringing prosperity, bringing... Uh, reconciliation within the community, helping your community to flourish. And in the long term, if, if that is what this church is going to do, then we need to be in a place where you are committing yourself to that, to the long term. Taking up positions in community, starting businesses, enrolling children in local schools, taking up leadership within church, owning the vision and the heart of this church, living with a sense of permanence that I am here for life unless God moves me on. Why? Because God has called you to this place for a purpose. Secondly, God also says, don't just settle down, he also says, seek the welfare of the city. Now these people, they were the enemies. They had ripped them out of all that they had known. And even in that context, God is now saying to these people, seek their welfare, look to bless them, look to support them, look to see their economic development, look to see their reconciliation flourish within their community. 
the welfare, the shalom, the peace, the prosperity. Live in such a way that generates strong community. But these Babylonians, they were bad people. God says, bless them. What does a flourishing town look like? Well, it's one where there is no discrimination or prejudice. It's where brokenness and broken lives have been acknowledged, restored and repaired. It's where everyone is benefiting from economic prosperity, not just a few people who know how to do it. Where anyone is is given equal opportunities towards education, employment. Where fear and anxiety is being replaced by security. Where the marginalised, the disadvantaged are feel embraced and contributing. That is the sort of community that we need to be looking at if the town is going to be flourishing. You know that there are many social issues within this town. And many people would look at education or will look at politics or will look at regeneration. But actually it's the part that you play and the part that we play that is actually going to bring about long-term regeneration. It's a part of the flourishing of the community which is such an expression of what the Gospel is all about. So how do we do that? Well, it's about intentionally going to the places and bringing the peace, where there's brokenness, where, there's, where at the moment there is no harmony, where there is not a flourishing environment and deliberately weaving ourselves into the fabric of that community. But some of you this morning might be saying, but, but, but Graham, why? Why? Why should we bother? Why shouldn't we just come in here on a Sunday morning, park up, come in, enjoy the new surroundings, go and get your cup of tea, get out into the car and drive home? Why is there much more than doing that? I want to give four reasons. One is that God's promise is attached to it. Secondly, God's character is on display. Thirdly, it's God's will that we're involved. And fourthly, God will be glorified as a result. So the first one in the sense that there's a promise that is attached to this. Seek their welfare so that you will secure your welfare. Now, I don't know how Pentecostal you are, but some of you will recognise there's a little bit of a prosperity gospel in there. I believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe in prosperity that God wants to prosper me, but it's not just so that you give me $100 and I'll have a new house and a new wife by the end of next week. But give me $100, why? Because God wants to prosper me so much that there's a benefit and it overspills into the people around me. Why God wants to prosper me is so that I can overflow and spill over into a community with the excess of God's grace. That's why I believe in prosperity and I don't mind praying for prosperity so that there is an overflow that everyone benefits from it. But I don't believe this passage is just talking about prosperity. I believe in this there is a sense of trust that God is talking about. We're living in a community which is much more transient. People move around far more. We have an international community. I don't know what it's like over here. International community that come in, seeking jobs, coming to be a part of something and then other opportunities come up and they're packing up and they're moving on. But actually what we're talking about is not being transient. It's about bedding in for the long term, for the long haul. And actually some of those issues that you have to put down, like career opportunities and even financial security or what is best for my children, are actually going secondary to fulfilling the purposes of God. And when we're in that place, we have to make a decision that I'm going to be trusting God for my family, I'm going to be trusting God for my future, I'm going to be trusting God. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were, were threatened by King Nebuchadnezzar, they said, he said to him, you bow down to me. If you don't bow down to me, then you go into the fiery furnace. They said, we're not going to bow down to you. So Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, off you go into the fiery furnace. But they said to him that three things. They said to him, our God is able to rescue us. We believe that God will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we're going to follow him anyway. 
And there is this sense that even in the purposes of God and even in the provision of God that I know he is able to supply all my needs. I know that he will supply all my needs. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, then I'm going to trust him anyway. And actually, even in our futures and even in our possessions, even in our career choices, even in those things God is saying to us, look, trust me in this. There's a promise that is attached. As you seek their welfare, as you commit yourself into doing this for the benefit of others, God is going to bless you. His paycheck is good. His checks won't bounce on you. You can't outgive God. And so there's that promise. So when I went down to south of France recently to look at a family, visit a family who have gone there deliberately, intentionally, left Brighton, go down to the south of France because God has called them. Three teenagers, 13, 15 and 16, none of them speak French, being ripped out of their family, uh, out of the community they were part of with a strong network of friends, even from their schooling, and they've gone into the south of France because God has called us as a family. So challenging because my God will supply all of our needs, even if it looks as if it's detrimental to us. The first reason, there's a promise. God's good for his promise. The second reason is that it puts God's character on display. We're made in the image of God, and every time we act in this way, we demonstrate something of him. Today I was introduced, I think Santina introduced me last week as Graham, the leader of King's Church, coming over in Eastbourne, coming across, speaking. I was introduced really by my day job. But actually I'm more than that. You know, I am a father to my son, I am a husband to my wife, and to many I am known as the most outstanding footballer in Eastbourne. (laughs) Not many. But actually, for you, you know me as the bloke who's come across from Eastbourne Kings to be with you today. How did God identify himself? Well, we could say he's the mighty, he's the awesome, he's the incredible, he's the creator, he's all of this. Well, look at how God introduces himself in Psalm chapter 68. He said this, Sing to God, sing praises to his name, the writer of the psalm said. He's father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, God settles the solitary, the lonely in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Here he is, the awesome one, the mighty one, the creator, and he's identifying himself with the weak and the vulnerable. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows. Deuteronomy 10 says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty, the awesome one, who shows no partiality and accepts no brides. And in the next verse, verse 18, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God has no problem with identifying himself with the weak and the more vulnerable and the disadvantaged in community. The very next verse, in 19, is very challenging. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Does Hastings have a problem with immigration? Immigration is such an opportunity for the gospel. I said recently in our church that there is no place for people to be part of political parties that have no room for immigration or foreigners coming into this country. No room. A man came to me at the end and I thought, it looks a little bit fierce. 
but genuinely he said, you know, for 65 years I've lived one way, for 45 years I've been a Christian and no one's ever said that, I need to change the way that I think and the way that I live. And I said, the way you do that now is deliberately, intentionally go out and find a foreigner, invite them into your home and start loving them how Christ wants you to love them. We have a part to play. Why? Because it wasn't that long ago that you were foreigners yourself. What do you mean? You were once aliens, separated. You were living in exile yourself until the amazing reconciliation of the cross brought you back into the very family of God. You were once aliens. You were once separated. You were once Gentiles. You were living in exile. You were once foreigners. But now you are no longer foreigners, but you have been brought in. Out of an understanding of your now position of who you are in God, your acceptable position, that you're now approved by him, your, your statesmanship, your, your identity has completely changed. Once you were out, but now you are in. Remember this. How? Because when you remember your once position and now where you are, you will show and extend grace towards other people as well. Courses room. There's room for everyone because it's part of a gospel opportunity. So we have a biblical mandate to get involved. Isaiah, earlier chapter, said this, chapter 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Do you see that? Learn, seek, correct, bring, plead. That is all very deliberate. That is all very intentional. It's how God is wanting us to live. There's not a passive response by saying, I will pray about it. I was once broken down in my car. I was 18 years of age, stuck in Birmingham, on a grass verge, at a conference, driving out of a Christian conference. I really should let this go one day. But my, my future wife, my girlfriend then, was sitting in the car with someone else driving her, and as she drove past, she saw me sitting in the car, broken down, on the grass verge, and all that blender could do was just wave at me. But she said to them, look, there's my boyfriend, he's broken down, and they said, oh, well, we can't stop now, but we'll pray for them. <laughs> You see, God is calling us to more, actually. Prayer is so important, but he's also calling us to more. Because the outworking of the prayer is that we're part of the solution of that prayer. God is calling us. Learn, seek, correct, bring, plead. Micah 6, he has told you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. Some of you might come and talk to your pastor and say, what does God want of me? Well, this is what he says. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. Act in such a way that brings justice. Justice isn't just about fighting exploitation. Justice is also about raising the disadvantaged. Defending, supporting, giving opportunity. But it's not just about action, it's also about the attitude as well. Live it in such a way, do it in such a way that reflects his unconditional grace and mercy. Why? Because we were once like foreigners ourselves. We were outside, but they don't deserve it. Neither did we. They, they have no rights to be here. Neither do we. They should pack their bags and go. So should we. They should be sent packing. So should we. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. See, a life poured out towards others is an inevitable sign of real authentic gospel, one that pushes the buttons to respond. The third reason is God's will. 
See, we're just stewards of what he owns. See, many people might have an objection to getting involved. You know, kind of a little bit more of an individualistic uh, philosophy of life. People say, it's not my problem, I've got to look after my own. It is not my fault. Some people have a little bit more of a political persuasion towards a conservative mindset. It's a bad decision that they've made. It's about family breakdown, moral deterioration. It is their fault and they have to dig themselves out. Some people with a little bit more of a liberal kind of leaning might be saying it's the fault of the system, it's the fault of education, it's the fault of society, it's the fault of governments, it is beyond their control and it's everyone else's fault. The Bible says a lot on all of those things. So the Bible has a lot to say about oppression. It's about low wages, excess interest and loans, exploitation of the poor. The Bible also has a lot to say about moral failure, lack of self-discipline. The Bible also has a lot to say about things that happen natural, natural occurrences. But the Bible is also very clear that to do nothing is not an option, regardless of who is to blame. Whose fault is it? Whose fault is it that a child is born into a home in inner city London where the huge issues of illiteracy. Whose fault is it that they might not have the advantage of others? Whose fault is it that many of the illiterate people, many prisons are filled up with people who are illiterate? Whose fault is it? Whether it's the systems, whether it's a moral failure, whether it's a background, whatever, no one actually ever turns around to blame the child because it is not their fault that they were born into circumstances that they were living in. And how come is it that my son gets the opportunities? How come? Because he he was born into a family like mine. See, God is wanting us to redistribute all that we have. For those who are disadvantaged will be given opportunity to be all that God wants them to be, to flourish. Galatians 6, Paul said this, Do good to all people, do good to all people, especially the family of faith. You know, some of you already got, oh, especially, right, okay, that means we've got to look after. But, but, but that's fine, especially, yeah, I understand the especially the family of faith. It's such important, that is so good. But actually, it comes out, that's the second half of the verse. The first half is do good to all people. We can't get onto the second one without the first one being done. Surely you don't mean all people. You can define that a little bit. Don't you, you, don't you mean people like me? No, actually, I mean people not like you. We had a video, I think, about 10 years ago over in Eastbourne, and we called it For People Like Us. It was the wrong title. Actually, it should have been For People Not Like Us. A church community should be filled up with people nothing like me whatsoever, which for many would think is a very good thing. But actually, to have such a community of all sorts that actually isn't just made up of people like us. Do good to all people. Now, one day, a man came along to try to trick Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, I want to love God. Uh, How do I do that? Love your neighbour. Okay, Jesus, you you know this. Define to me who is my neighbour. And Jesus told him a story about a man was going down the road, got beaten up. Two people who came along who should have helped him, didn't help him. And then a Samaritan, the hated Samaritan, came along. He was a good man. He helped him. He put himself out. He inconvenienced himself. He laid out his uh, own money in order to support this person. Looked after him. He even went back, put him in, in everything like that. And then Jesus said, okay, who's the neighbour? And the man had to concede while the neighbour in that situation through gritted teeth was the Samaritan that he would have hated. But what is one of the real purposes of that story? You see, regardless of race and colour and politics or class or faith, love them like you love yourself. Go beyond. 
Living like that is going to cost. It's going to cost in time and it's going to cost in money. But why should I? It's my money. I've earned that or I've inherited it well. It's wrong. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's the owner. We're the stewards. How much of the cake does God get? How big a slice? He gets the whole lot. Why? Because he owns the whole lot. It's his cake. Let me illustrate. A number of years ago, an elderly lady who didn't live in Eastbourne, lived up in Norfolk, left, uh, actually, as it turned out, a large amount of money in trust for me to distribute in accordance with her will. Who owns the money? Was it mine? It wasn't my money. I had to distribute it in accordance with her wishes. And actually, in the sense that God is saying that to us, We've been given not to distribute and to spend in accordance with our own desires, but to spend it and give it in accordance with his will. Overflow of grace produces generosity. Failure to be generous is a failure to understand grace. It's also a failure to understand that we're stewards of God's resources and to redistribute it in line with his will. Fourthly, so that God will be glorified. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and praise you endlessly on television. (laughs) Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Shaping culture, blessing communities, seeking welfare of the town, builds a platform in order to pre- uh, present the gospel. Why is that important? Because the only one who can bring real peace, the only one who can bring real shalom, the only one who can bring reconciliation is the one who is described in this book as the one who is the Prince of Peace. His name Jesus, seeking to be part of this community rather than hiding away and looking to bless it and to benefit it, builds a mission platform in order to introduce people to Jesus, not push people away. It adds authenticity, it adds genuineness and starts to counteract fear and objections that they may have. Getting involved in this community is not weakening our message or our position, in fact getting involved and seeing this gospel transform this community, it will ultimately point people towards Jesus. That's why we get involved. We do this so that people will praise our Father who is in heaven. Therefore, Paul said, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have shalom, we have reconciliation. That barrier that was there is no longer there through faith in Jesus. In Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, the cro- by the blood of his cross. See, peace, reconciliation, is all part of the gospel message where everything is going to be reconciled to him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 say this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So instead of it being a departure from the gospel, this is the gospel. Adam, who lost everything in the garden and destroyed it, was fully recovered in the one who was described as the second Adam in Jesus. 
who not only restored our relationship with God, but is now restoring all things to him. He's also restored our calling him. Our very purpose in living. The very thing that Adam and Eve were given to go out into the world and populate the earth and, 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 and go out and have lots of babies and travel a lot. That very commission that was given to Adam and Eve, which was lost at the fall, was then recommissioned to the church when Jesus said, go out into the world making disciples. It's the same commission. The very purpose that we now have is to be people of reconciliation. Why? Because he is the Prince of Peace and it's all in the Gospel. This is the Gospel. It's much bigger than coming into a community like this and and, and reading the Bible. It's actually how can we bless this community and restore it to God's original purpose. Ultimately, no, it's all going to get sorted out. We know the end goal in all of this. But in the meantime, we have a ministry of reconciliation. So if we were no longer here, would anyone even notice? How long would it take them to notice? How do we bring much to this community that sees its development, that sees it flourish? How can we generate strong community where human beings are flourishing? How can your new community groups that you have started recently, the mission groups, weave themselves into broken fabric of society and to help repair community? See, traditionally, the wider church has been very good at getting involved in meeting needs, but as well as bringing relief, which is a good thing, but we have a wider role in bringing regeneration and development. Why? To provide gateways out of current experience into the good news of the gospel. We recently read, uh, met up with the NP of Eastbourne and we asked him that question. We said, Stephen, what can we do to bring regeneration and prosperity to this town? I don't know whether he's ever had a church leader ask him that question. But he said this, to paraphrase him, he said, don't just come with your soup kitchens but come with your jobs as well. And actually that was profound in many ways. Do something that is going to lift the area in the long run. Providing relief of poverty is good, but providing gateways out of poverty is liberating for people. Why? Because the gospel is good news. In every area of life, it's good news to the poor, it's good news to the oppressed, it's good news to the sick, it's good news for those who are held in captivity. The gospel doesn't leave people trapped in their old sin life, sins as scarlet as red, and neither should it leave them trapped in their old life as well. The gospel is about regeneration. John Cadbury, many of you will know and love him dearly. He's the man who introduced chocolate to this nation. But he wasn't just an entrepreneur, good businessman. He wanted to do something that was going to intentionally improve the living conditions in the 19th century. He saw the effects of alcohol and he thought cocoa and hot chocolate was a much better alternative. And as a result, working conditions improved, wages improved, housing improved, other reforms were introduced, boys stopped climbing up chimneys and many other things. How do we respond? Chocolate's been done. (laughs) How about establishing jobs that benefit the disadvantaged? How about looking to bless rather than condemn? How about dealing with some of the prejudices that we have? How about supporting single parents and disabled and immigrants and marginalised in community? What about setting up training programmes, apprenticeships? How do we affect society to such an extent that the otherwise disadvantaged are blessed? See, these are the sort of questions which are much wider and broader. See, we have an amazing message. We have an amazing gospel. We have an amazing saviour. The message is too small a thing 
to be restricted to the ridge on the hill. What God is calling us and you to is no small thing. You spent 30 years building a great church. How are you going to spend the next 30? 60 years? That sounds like a lifetime. That's exactly right. There is a lifetime. And that's what it's going to take. And these people to be in for the long haul. You, your children, your children's children. So as I come into, (laughs) just sum up now. I want to encourage us all today is how do we engage with a much bigger gospel? If you run a business, which I guess some of you do, be the best employer in the town, pay them well, treat people well, don't put profit at the top of your priority. The Bible has a lot to say about exploitation and greed. If you're self-employed, earn yourself the best reputation and work the best you can on behalf of your clients. But some of you might say, but I'm not in that position. I don't run a business, I'm not self-employed, what can I do? Hey, guess what, you're going to have people who are living right next door to you, in your community, in your streets, who are currently, would be categorised as disadvantaged. Hey, let's get involved. If it's the disabled, if it's the deaf community, if it's the immigrant, if it's a single parent, let's start weaving ourselves into their life and building bridges into their world. The passage out of Jeremiah said this, build your houses. And I just feel that actually for some people it's time to unpack the suitcases. And even for some it's to take down your for sale sign which is currently upside your house. God must want something more. Yeah, he does. And for some of you it's like to time to go, what is God saying to me? For some might actually even be in rented accommodation, waiting for the housing markets, this, that, and they were leaving your options open. God's saying, you know, build your houses. Bed in for a long term. A couple of other instructions is get married, have children. Well, some of you might go, get married, okay, I'll find a wife, and eBay or something, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that sometimes people fear commitment and sometimes people fear responsibility. And God is saying, take commitment, take responsibility, unpack your bags, be in for the long haul. Put down your roots, make commitment take responsibility, even in the centre of this church. Some of you might be saying, do you know what? I'm going to see how Paul shapes up. I'm doing all right, but I'm leaving it a bit on the edge. It's time to unpack your bags and say, I'm in this for life until God moves me on. Gain reputation for being the defender of the fatherless and the protector of the widows, just like our Heavenly Father. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice, plead the widow's cause, seek the welfare of the city. God's promises are good, God's character is being displayed, God's will will be expressed and God will ultimately be glorified. It's too small a thing to be giving yourself to anything less. Can we just pray together and then I guess we'll wrap up from there. I'll invite Paul to come in. Lord, we stand before you as people who firstly understand the immense, with immense gratitude of the grace of God. Even to be reminded again today of what you've done for us. And even as we heard in song earlier on about how (laughs) even when we discard ourselves and disqualify, you've not disqualified or discarded, but you've made us approved in your sight. 
We thank you for your immense grace, outrageous, generous grace. We thank you that none of us deserve to be here. We thank you that all of us were foreigners and aliens and outsiders, and yet you have embraced us into the very family of God. And Father, my prayer is this, that this community here will be such an overflow expression of his grace that it runs from the ridge down into the very community that we're part of. Every road that runs down will be oozing and dripping and saturated with the presence of the grace of God. To look, to seek, to bless, to engage, to support, to raise up, to bring advantage, whatever this means, ultimately to bring glory to your name. We thank you, Jesus, that you're the Prince of Peace. We thank you that the only one, ultimately, who came is the second Adam to restore everything that was lost, which brought reconciliation for us. But Lord, I pray that we will also be people who now, given the ministry of reconciliation, will go and spill out into this town and do exactly what you've commissioned us to do. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. close it up there but I, I just, just want to encourage you to dwell on what Graham said today. I feel that was a weighty word for us and I think in the whole season we're in it's time for us as a church and we're looking at the building here but actually community groups and how we live our lives I know there are men here of business men who, who are employers, men who are making a difference, men and women who are making a difference in their settings. And I think I'd, I'd encourage you, because if, if, Graham, there's a lot in there, and if it's sort of just gone as a bit of a whir, download it, listen to it again, ask God to highlight, because I feel there are things in here that are, are important for us as a church in the season we're in. Lord, I thank you that your word um, is the imperishable seed. I pray, Lord, that it would take root in our lives, grow and be fruitful. Lord, we know, Lord, that our, our town, our communities are needy. Lord, they need the full breadth and extent of the gospel to see change and transformation and true regeneration. And Lord, it's the very things we've been praying about over the last 36 hours. Oh God, would you bring it about? Lord, we say we're available to be used in your hands. Lord, would you use us to see your kingdom extended, your name glorified, and the poor and the needy met. We say that in Jesus' name. Amen. Excellent. Hang around, enjoy coffee and refreshments. Don't forget, we're praying tonight, 6.30, and we'll be praying into some of these things. Have a great afternoon, and see you during the week. Thank you.